Hey there, this is Angel Donovan with Dating Sex Relationships, the show where we focus on practical takeaways and looking at new perspectives on dating, sex, and relationships. Before we jump in, if you haven't yet checked out our program, our behavior change program to get this aspect of your life rolling quicker, go check it out at datingskillsreview.com forward slash implant. It's not a typical program. It's all about enforcing, implanting behavior change into you so you become a more attractive version of yourself. Today's topic was a lot of fun to dig into. It's all about communication in conflict scenarios in relationships. So arguments with girlfriends, wives, or just situations where you feel there is a negative underlying dynamic that you need to resolve to have a better relationship with someone, or it could be just someone that you met. The question is, when someone's angry at you or they feel a bit off with you, how do you turn that around? A great tool that I came across and started using around a year ago is called Nonviolent Communication. This was designed by a guy called Marshall Rosenberg, who unfortunately just passed away in February of this year. And he used this to diffuse conflicts peacefully. That was really the role of this tool, to diffuse situations and allow you to connect with the person and create rapid intimacy. And this is really what has happened in my experience when I've had some kind of conflict or something like that. And I've taken the time to think about this and use this tool. It's worked very well for me in terms of creating that kind of intimate connection and getting rid of the underlying issue. We dig more into the details of that in the show. Today's guest is Kelly Bryson. Kelly Bryson is a licensed psychotherapist and authorized trainer for the International Center for Nonviolent Communication. He's been doing this for a very, very long time, 35 years or so. He's also got a book out called Don't Be Nice, Be Real, Balancing Passion for Self with Compassion for Others, which was published in 2010. And he has studied all sorts of methods uh, to communication, and he believes NVC, as it's called, nonviolent communication, is by far the best, simplest, and most effective. Something else that we jump into in this episode, in addition to the nonviolent communication tool, is called New Culture. It's something that Kelly Bryson has been involved in for a while, and it's basically a different dating lifestyle that we haven't yet encountered. So we're going to learn a bit more about that. And I guess you would call this an evolution of polyamory, if you wanted to call it something, but we'll get into exactly what it is. Now, a quick apology, because the audio quality is slightly lower than usual on the guest side. Unfortunately, because of where he was based, that was unavoidable. We got our audio guy to clear it up a bit, so bear with us. It is a really good interview with some interesting insights, especially for those of you who are exploring new ways of dating and new ways of having relationships and you're interested in the whole intimacy and connection aspect of things. A couple of takeaways before we get started. If you want the show notes, the mp3 download, uh, the comments, all that kind of good stuff, then go to datingskillsreview.com forward slash podcast and pick out this episode there. If you want to get all of that in your email inbox every time we put a show out, go to datingskillsreview.com forward slash newsletter and you'll get it all automatically every week. Now let's get into this interview. I'm Angel Donovan, and this is the Dating Skills Podcast. This is a 14-year ongoing mission to discover the truth about what works in dating, sex, and relationships. To become a better man. 
Join me as I leave no stone unturned. Chase down every expert, role model, and mentor with insights to get us to that goal as fast as possible. This show is about bringing you the best of that information so that you can take it in and change your life for the better, step by step, episode by episode. Kelly, thank you for joining the show. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. So I'd like to start off with how you look at the area of relationships, which may be different to other writers about relationships, if you're talking about it more broadly. How do you approach it differently, the subject? Wow, we're just diving right in. Okay. Boom. <laughs> Boom. Let's do it. I suppose the unique flavor that I bring to a perspective I have on it is that I see it as part of a web of life. It's all these systems and all these relationships that are interconnected, whether we recognize it or not and whether we're conscious of it or not. So you might say I have a systems approach to everything, to life, relationships, communication. What systems are we part of? Do we have nurturing systems that are supporting us? And what systems, what paradigms are we dancing with in our heads to do this thing called relationship? Even the whole idea of love. Are we coming from a place of romantic love where all I want is you, can't live as living is without you, great song here in the U.S.? Or am I coming from this other place of not even thinking of love as a feeling, but more as a state of consciousness? And when I'm in it, all I want is your happiness. All I want is your fulfillment of your life. And in one sense, I don't feel a need for anything from you just to share this state of loving support for each other is all I want. And it comes from the awareness that we are a loving awareness. When I'm conscious I am loving awareness, I don't feel this big, I got to have you kind of thing. But it is wonderful when I'm not looking to you for my fulfillment, my wholeness or whatever. We can look parallel into the world and share that together instead of looking at each other for our fulfillment or satisfaction. And I think in order to do that, we need to be part of what I call transparent, touching, trusting, tolerant tribes. We need to be a part of that system to nurture us, to fulfill us, to keep us connected to ourselves so that we don't lose ourselves when we start to go deep, intimately, sexually, emotionally with other people. So it sounds like from that, it's very direct, true communication you're talking about? I'm more able to, I think. The more I'm connected to my soul, if you want to call it that, self, the more conscious I am of what's alive in me, not just what's going on in my head, the more I'm able to be transparent instead of just being honest. And there's a big difference between just being honest and being able to be transparent. When I'm transparent, I'm showing you my energy. I'm letting you see my whole body, my whole life force, my whole emotional field. I'm I'm being vulnerable. I'm exposing you to that. I'm open to making contact with you. I could be honest with you and not be open to you. My heart could be totally closed to you. Would you have a good example of that? Like when someone is being honest, but they're not being transparent? Yes. uh, One time I had a girlfriend, I suppose, (laughs) and uh, she lived in another city. I'm just interested. Why why did you say suppose? Oh, gosh, because we've spent so many hours trying to figure out what label to use instead of my girlfriend, my boyfriend, Uh that honors us with more consciousness. In the moment, I couldn't come up with anything (laughs) more conscious than that. Hopefully, listeners will understand, and I may explain more later. 
we don't see ourselves as owning each other. So it's not really a good term to say my girlfriend. Great. I mean, I, th- I think that's interesting. That I'm glad I followed up with you on that point. So anyway, my girlfriend, <laughs> common usage, uh, told me that she was feeling some attraction for another man in her hometown. We have a little bit of a long distance relationship. And so she was being honest. And I really appreciated that. And I, I was grateful for that. And as time went on, she would tell me occasionally her interest or what she was doing with this other man. And I kept feeling uneasy. I kept feeling uncomfortable or nervous about it or not connected somehow. Didn't understand why. Because she was being honest with me after all. And then after a while, finally she, she got there first. She says, Kelly, the reason I think you're not comfortable is because I have not been transparent about my energy about this man. I've only told you the honesty on the surface. And I said, well, please, show me the other thing. Show me the energy. Do the transparency thing. She says, okay. And so she sits quietly for a minute with her eyes closed and her hands in her lap. And then after a minute or so, she starts trembling. She starts shaking. And finally, she opens her eyes and she says, Kelly, I really want to make love with this man. Really bad. Really intense. We have an intense attraction and I want him really bad. And so when she said that, at first I got scared a little bit. Then I felt this ah relaxation over my body because finally she wasn't hiding anything from me. She was letting me in on the little secret part of herself, energy part, that she was afraid to show me before, afraid I would leave or react or whatever. But as soon as she showed it to me, I felt trust, I felt relaxation. She was not just being honest, she was being energetically transparent with me. So she was sharing a lot more of the emotional intensity, the emotional value of what she was feeling rather before the honesty was kind of dry. Yeah. And, yeah. Just factual, just from the head, just thought. Right, right. Yeah, basically honesty can sometimes ignore that communication is all this other stuff as well. The, you know, it's the emotional aspect, the emotional value. It doesn't necessarily build the trust. What I'm finding in the communities I'm working in, the most important thing we can do is to establish trust between the people. And the best way to do that is by full transparency, not just honesty. Well, great. Thank you for that. That's, that's a really good start to the conversation. In terms of your own life, I guess we kind of saw some perspective there. In terms of your own relationships, how do they function? Do you have girlfriends now? Or are you married? Or what's kind of the context? I've never been married. Okay. And I have several people that I have deep connection relationships with, and they're all very, very different. Some of them are very rich soul connections with soul recognition. When we meet together, we just go to heaven. I have other relationships, particularly in Germany. I have a, my translator in Germany. We have a heart-soul connection, but we're five-year-olds together. We're like in puppy love all the time, five-year-old puppy love with each other. We're not sexual. We're not romantic. But boy, are we in love. We'd love to spend lots of time together if we can. So that has its own quality. Uh, I have a partner here locally in the town where I live. And it's a very intense sexual connection. We just have some chemistry around that. So it's very intense. And uh, it's a bit more, I need to use more of my NBC skills in this relationship than some of the others. They're more easy and natural. Great, great. And we'll get into the NVC part for sure. It's interesting that you, you define each relationship very differently. It's got the kind of playing different roles in your life. It's almost like I need a different word for every relationship. I have one in Switzerland that's just soulful in another way. It's not sexual, but it's soulful. Each one is like its own form of relationship. Each one is totally unique. 
I couldn't really put them in any category together. That's one of the things I love about relationships. I feel like I learn a lot from each relationship I have. I don't know if that's something you feel, which is another benefit to having these in individual. Yeah, I like what uh, Daphne Rose Kingma said in her book. She wrote a beautiful book called The Future of Love. And in it, she says, our attractions, our resonances, tell us where our evolution is. And if we can follow them and not try to make them something they're not, then they'll reveal an aspect of our evolution to us in all kinds of different ways. And they're totally unique. I try to listen to that that pull, that resonance, and not come with a preconceived package or label for it. So I might feel a strong pull to somebody. My first thought sometimes is, oh, it might be sexual. Yeah. But often it's not. Often it's other things. Right. And, and you have to f- figure that out. I mean, that's quite a hard thing to do, I think, sometimes. If you haven't had experience in it, I think a lot of people may be listening today and they, they're like, well, no, I just I kind of feel sexual attraction or I don't. But I've certainly seen a lot of different colors in, in relationships. So I can kind of, I don't think I'm on the same level as you, but I can kind of understand where you're coming from. It's sort of sad for me because most men have a symphony orchestra going on inside of them, but instead they sound like tin whistles, either I'm attracted, yes or no, I'm not attracted, actually. And they're missing out. There's a whole, like that tin whistle. It's two notes. Yes, no, good, bad, attraction sexually or not. But inside there's a symphony orchestra playing all different kinds of resonances. And finding out what is my particular resonance with this person is a beautiful adventure. I like to go spiritually spelunking into the caverns of consciousness with everyone who's willing to go deep with me. Great, great. Thank you. I'm also wondering, I told you before we started that we've had polyamorists and a wide variety of people. I was just wondering if you put yourself in any category or you think of yourself as like undefinable by all of these kind of categories, like polyamorists, like swingers, and there's a lot of these kind of communities and stuff. There's a whole cultural field behind each one of these communities. Polyamory was started by particular people in a particular place in Northern California, and it has a culture to it. It has a particular vibration to it. It started in a certain place and grew up with certain ideas related to it. So it has a cultural feel to it. And I would say it has about 3% overlap with this other cultural field that I love to play in. I'll call it new culture. Which culture? I call it new culture. New culture, okay. New culture, or some people in Germany, they call it Freie Libra. Uh-huh. It means free love. Love free of fear, free of possessiveness, free of control, free of games, free of manipulation. and has particular quality to it. And how did you get involved in this for the first time? Or like, where did it come from? I think first I did, in being in California, I I stumbled across some people who were playing at something called polyamory. And I checked that out for a bit. But then I found out that it didn't have the cultural breadth. It didn't have, it wasn't in a context of, I'd call it a healthy, holistic community setting. It was just focused on having multiple partners. It wasn't focused on having a different kind of love a different quality of love. It was focused on having a different quantity of love. So I'm interested in being a part of communities that support each other for finding out what is your particular preference in love relationships and helping you be true to that and not helping you hide out in polyamory or hide out in monogamy or hide out in anything except to be true to your own preferences and to call you on that and support you in finding that. Because the thing about any community, they tend to develop social rules and their own kind of cultural rules, which 
Ben, I mean, I feel like I always don't want to be defined by the social context around me. I just want to be myself and I want to develop myself. And I guess it's a skill I developed is to kind of resist and and not be sucked in by these kind of like the social standards and rules and 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 that kind of social pressure around you to to fit one way or to go with one way. Is that something that you perceive that is uh, maybe not the, the best idea from your perspective? Well, in the cultures that I'm playing with and creating and some of the communities I'm helping to create and start in Germany and the West Coast and Hawaii, we do have some cultural values and principles. I wouldn't call them rules, but it's helpful to have some principles culturally supported that are part of the culture of the community. Otherwise, it's just pretty chaotic. There's nothing to support. There's no matrix. To support consciousness growing. So some of the principles that we bring in to help support this consciousness is a value to not giving in, for example. We ask that people don't let others give in to them and that they don't give in to other people. We don't abandon ourselves in the relationships as best we can. Would be one. Another is this value of transparency. It's not a rule. We can't make people be transparent, but it's a value. Great, great. Thank you for, I like the idea of um, values instead of rules. I have to admit, the way I put it wasn't the best approach to it, but values you buy into. Well, it's understandable coming from where most people are coming from, that their culture, their society is pretty focused on getting you to sacrifice yourself for the good of the culture, for the good of the people. I call that a collectivist culture, collectivist organization. You're asked to become sheeple to follow the crowd, to support the values, the economics, the power structures, the culture you're in, as opposed to organizations or tribes that I would call communitarian. In a communitarian tribe, the focus is on how do we get each individual to bloom? How do we support each individual in having a fully lived life? It's about what the community can do for the individual. And of course, there's mutual support in that. But otherwise, we just... We get into it, we get learn these games, these gotcha games, power over games. We bring them into our love relationships, ego battle games, perpetrator, victim, rescuer games, low drama. You get very caught up in that kind of stuff. And you can do that in a polyamorous cultural field or monogamous cultural field, but you can't do it in a new cultural field. It doesn't support low drama. So, are there a lot of people in this new culture? community. You've mentioned Germany quite a few times. Is that one of the places it came from? That's one of the places it started from. Is that the Zeg community in Germany? Z-E-G-G, the Zeg community in south of Berlin. And now it's spreading all around the world. There's a huge community in Portugal, south of Lisbon, called Tamara.org. And then there's just networks of people in the U.S. all across the country that have tribes. And dating is very different in a tribe. Because when you're dating within your tribe, you know about the people. You see how they are on a daily basis with people. You learn about their integrity. It has a different feel to it to date people who are part of the same culture, tribe. Absolutely. So you have a lot more information on them, just like how you, how you go about it. So I'm guessing people within this tribe, this community, they, they only date people within the community? No, not that they only do. But it's helpful for me and my relationships, too, to have people to support the relationship. They can give the honesty that some people can give my partner the honesty that she won't hear from me or give me the empathy that she can't give me. 
It was just a support for making relationships work. A chapter in my new book, one of the chapters is, it takes a village to raise a relationship. It takes a village to? Raise a relationship. Okay. To support a relationship. Just trying to do it on your own can be very difficult, especially if you're doing any new paradigm relating. If you're doing the old paradigm or kind of patriarchal, then there's plenty of support for that. But not for a non-hierarchical, non-patriarchal relationship. You need the support of a tribe to make it work well. Right. So we've talked before about how this works with marriage, where one of the nice things about marriage is when you get married, people around you tend to support the relationship more. They see you as in a partnership. Marriage is pretty iconic in our society. So people look at you completely different once you're married. And that can be very supportive. You know, your family is supporting you, your friends and, and so on. They will look at you in, in that thing. It reinforces the relationship. So is that similar? Yeah. Yeah, because you're, you're declaring, we are in this connection together. We would like support for it. We need tough honesty sometimes. We need nurturing, compassionate empathy sometimes. We need different things to keep our connection alive and healthy between us. One thing I'm curious about is you mentioned empathy a few times there. So say you're dating someone in the community and she she's not a very, people are different. They have different biologies. They go around their lives differently. She's not feeling like a very empathetic towards you or to certain things. Would they just communicate that when that's going on inside them? They're not feeling empathic or that's not in their nature? Hopefully they've had some nonviolent communication training. Yeah. If they have, they wouldn't tell you what's not going on. They would tell you what is going on. They wouldn't say, I'm not feeling empathic. They'd say, I'm feeling empty. I'm feeling lost. I'm feeling scared. I'm feeling, I have pain going on myself that prevents me from giving you the empathy I'd like to give you. Can you tell me what you're hearing? Can you give me empathy for that? They'd say what's alive in them and what they want back from you about it. If they've had some NBC training that they're willing to practice. Great. All right, let's dive into VL, nonviolent communication. And you call it NVC, right? Yeah, that's shorthand. Okay, cool. Well, so I thought we'd jumpstart this part by talking about some examples of violent communication that most people don't consider violent. So something you'd look at from this model and you say it's violent where other people are like, oh, no, I don't get that. Here's a good example of it. It'd be something like, you know, love relationship. It sounds very new age. It sounds very conscious. I've heard this all over the place. There's a bunch of them. Here's one or two. I feel unheard by you. It sounds like very new agey or very conscious, but it doesn't reveal any of the vulnerability. It doesn't show any of my vulnerability to say that. It also implies that you're doing something wrong. It's wrong to not hear people. It also doesn't take responsibility. I'm not saying how I'm not taking care of my needs. I'm not saying what my perspective is that's causing my, myself to feel this pain. I'm also not making a clear request what I want in this very moment in relationship to that painful state. Okay, so it sounds like a lot of it is about not lowering my defenses when I'm communicating and, in a sense, pushing the fault, even though it's kind of subtle, on the other person. It's a disguised form of blame. Disguised form of blame. It's things like, I feel manipulated by you. I feel attacked. I feel judged. I was watching these major players. They're like... Um, workshop leaders and very well known. And they were teaching people to say things like, I feel attacked by you. I feel judged. 
we got into this big battle with each other about who feels judged. I feel judged by you saying to me that you feel judged. <laughs> if this judgment hall of mirrors going on, it's just weird. Right. So you're saying that's pretty much, if I say I feel attacked by you, it's pretty much the same as saying you're attacking me. Yeah. I think most of the time that's how it would be heard. Because it doesn't reveal any of my vulnerability. I'm not saying I feel scared. I feel hurt. I feel pain. I'm also projecting it onto you. I'm saying it's because of you and what you did, as if I have no power to choose my own response to things, as if I'm just the victim of whatever you do to me. Yeah. So I've used, I, I told you before, I've used it a few times over the last year. I've studied uh, some of the courses and stuff, and I still find it quite challenging, nonviolent communication to get it right. And I think it does, it takes a, a fair bit of study, but I have seen that it works uh, remarkably. You get very remarkable responses from the other person, even when you're in an argument and a conflict. However, I was wondering how, when you come across someone who has never seen what nonviolent communication is, and, you know, maybe they're not as open to, I don't know, self-development and, or they haven't been working on on that aspect of themselves so much. How do you explain nonviolent communication to them so they can understand what it is and how it works and, and why it's something they should take an interest in. I don't. Uh (laughs) What I would do is I would let them experience something they cannot resist, which is empathy. And I would do it silently. I wouldn't do it in words, overtly. I would let them get used to and feel what it feels like to be empathized with until they feel a trust growing, until they feel a warmth and a connection with them. And then... Maybe later I would talk to them about the mechanics of it or something like that. But empathy always, like Carl Rogers, kind of the father of empathy, once said, I don't know what empathy is, but whenever I get it, it feels damn good. And other people will feel the same way. They feel damn good when you practice being empathic to whatever they're expressing. And that good feeling is your doorway into trust. Yeah, so so one of the really fundamental principles here is growing trust between people. Absolutely. And for how that person is communicating with me, there's always a way to empathize with whatever they're saying. And I can do it silently, or I can do it in words out loud. But either way, it starts to build a bridge of connection energetically. Right. You've been doing this for 35 years, correct? Something like that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a long time. When was the last time you had an argument? Like how we look at arguments? Oh, Jesus. Uh, a couple of days ago. A couple of days. Okay, cool. <laughs> so you still do have um, the arguments, but do you, do you deal with them differently to most people? Than most people? For a while, it depends on who it is, partly. There's this one person that I have the hardest time with. It's someone that I probably feel the closest with. And in that situation, that's the challenge to really keep my empathic consciousness turned up. There is, is the biggest challenge. My heart's on the line. There's so much on the line, so to speak. When your emotions on the line, it, it's a lot more challenging. Yeah, when your heart is, is invested. Yeah, great. Thanks for the transparency on that. It's, it's, it's really good to hear. When you were talking about empathy uh, a minute ago, what kind of things, in order to kind of make this visualizable by the audience, I don't, could you give me an example of that? So someone says to me, I feel unheard by you. So they're kind of blaming me. They're saying I should have been listening better. So what I would like to do is turn up my empathic sensing consciousness, just get present get really present and listen and turn my attention toward them and practice empathic sensing. I might try to sense into what they're feeling. My words might sound something like, so it sounds like you're really hurt because you would like to have been heard much more deeply than you have been so far. Is that, am I on target? 
And mostly it's about the energy. What's in my heart when I say this? Am I truly having empathy and compassion for the hurt that I've been the stimulus for, not the cause of? If I'm clear on that, that I'm simply the stimulus and not the cause, it makes it a lot easier to have empathy for them. Great. Thank you for that. It's a very clear example. What are the most extreme situations you have seen in VC used successfully? And does it always work? Have you found that it's like one of these tools in life, these uh, approaches to life, which is really, really valuable because it works a lot, you know, 99% of the time? Well, depends on your definition of work. Most people's definition, or many people's definition of work is I get what I want. I get the person to give me what I want, regardless of whether it meets their needs or not. So in that case, I'd say it doesn't work all the time, nor would I want it to. I only want it to get what I'm needing is if it comes from the other person's heart and they're giving it joyfully to me, not giving in to me because that destroys the relationship. Does that make sense? Yes, it, yes, it does. It depends on how you define works. If it, I like to keep the relationship in good order and not damage the relationship just by getting what I'm wanting about a particular situation. Right, right. So if the primary objective is keeping the, well, having the healthy relationship, then it works very well. But if your objective is to get something from the other person, then obviously it's not designed to do that. It's not a win-win situation, basically, as we'd say in modern lingo. I'm assuming you've worked with a lot of couples and in male-female relationship situations. Where have you seen NBC used most effectively or you felt it's had the biggest impact? Well, for many people, it's just magic right off the bat. In, In a week or two there, functioning at a whole nother level if people are committed to it and they come to me right, ready. They've suffered enough, ready for a change, ready to let go of being right a little bit, let go of the ego and start practicing this stuff. For many, many, I've had hundreds and hundreds of emails from couples saying it saved their lives, it saved their families in a very short period of time. In a matter of weeks, they can shift dramatically the quality of their connection and communication. And I've seen it heal major rifts in fathers and daughters and mothers and daughters in a very quick way. It is like magic. It's the magic of empathy. Great. So do these people have to come to learn it together? Or can one person in the situation, it's it's a husband, for instance, in a marriage, can he learn it and then go back to his relationship and it will have the same impact as you just described? Well, I'd say it's better if both parties can be involved. But yes, I've I've worked with many single women or single men who come and get some empathy and get some tools, get some learning, and then they go back into their relationship. It's such a dramatic change often for the partner. The partner is often willing to come after they've experienced the change in their partner, willing to come and be together and work together. Great. Thank you. A lot of this context is relationships, right? We're talking about long-term relationships. However, like a lot of people having much shorter-term relationships or, you know, they're meeting people, just they could be hookups or they could be very brief relationships. Do you think it's equally as effective in these short-term where people haven't got to know each other yet? Intimacy is ecstatic, whether it's for five minutes or 50 years. And it is so very useful to have that kind of intimate empathic connection in resolving any kind of negotiation. The more connection there is there, the more trust there is there, the easier any kind of negotiation goes. So I've had very short encounters, five-minute encounters, that are can be sweet if my intention is to connect, and my intention is to be vulnerable, 
and I language it in a way that reveals that. I've had very sweet short-term and... So I know the uh, title of your book is uh, Don't Be Nice, Be Real. It's interesting in a nonviolent communication context. What did you want to communicate beyond nonviolent communication in that book? Well, several things, really. I think one is just the power of vulnerability is profound. The other thing is the intention to have compassion, empathy, connect to the other person is a profound power in itself. And then the third thing is we need each other. That Even couples who come together, I don't think they can overcome the polarization that happens between the masculine and feminine in this patriarchal world without the support of a conscious, trusting, skillful, sophisticated tribe of people to support that relationship. Those three things. Great. So I just picked up on the polarization point because uh, I find it's interesting. Is you're saying that polarization of the masculine and feminine is mostly due to the patriarchal society? Yes. There were times when 8,000 years ago, I think, when cultures were not so patriarchal and that the power of the feminine was more available to make relationships work and there was much less domination culture going on. And so there's a lot more peace. And women didn't need to be dominated by the masculine in order to create order. And I think if, if we can come back to that, that's what these little tribes are all about, is starting to share the power again, bring the feminine power back so that these tribes can be really rich, really sacred, really powerful. Great. Well, the way I'm looking, I, do you know David Dieter's work? A little bit. Okay. Well, because he talks a lot about the masculine and the feminine. And I think he talks about it the same way as you. What I got from you there is that you're saying that the difference is that the, the feminine is dominated and it's actually weaker in the patriarchal society. But what you're talking about is feminine energy, but a strong feminine energy. And that's what David Dieter teaches also. So I think it fits. Would, that, would you say that sounds like it fits also? It fits. And then I would add one more thing, which would be that Dieter Doom is one of my favorite authors on all of this. Dieter Doom wrote a book called The Sacred Matrix. And in it, he says that new cultures, healthy, nonviolent civilizations and cultures and tribes are founded on the basis of the trusting circle of women, where women come together in a circle and really get real with each other, get transparent with each other and trust each other. So they're not always trying to protect their relationship with their man, control each other, be suspicious of each other, not trust each other. Always afraid that some woman's going to try to take their man from them. They can really get into a deep, trusting place. That's the foundation for a healthy, nurturing, trusting tribe to happen. And also it makes it so that women don't lose themselves into a man because they have their sisterhood to make them strong and to not abandon themselves and be true to themselves so they don't become codependent and give their center away to a man. Then you can have a healthy, nonviolent society field of relationship. That's really interesting that you brought up the point of women fighting each other. We had a recent interview with a scientist talking about intersexual competition and how in modern society it's like it's taking place all the time and it's it's you know it's very common. And so the fact that you brought that up, I always find it interesting when different worlds connect uh, with similar ideas. What do you mean by intersexual? Well, intersexual basically means women competing against women, which was the topic of that of that interview, and men competing against men. We often talk about men competing against men, but you just referred to women being concerned about losing their male and thus competing against each other. Is that correct? That and also them looking for in a man 
what they've lost in the universe. They try to find their soul in a man. And really, it's much more able to be found by the supportive group of women supporting each woman in finding their own authentic connection with themselves so they don't lose it. They don't sell it away to a man. So would you say most of the women in the new culture take on this nurturing behavior to each other? Yes, it's part of the culture. It's a cultural field issue. It's like a natural part of the culture. But even like, for example, at the Zeg community in Germany, if a woman gets jealous and is upset and has pain going on in relation to her man, the first thing she does is she calls the women together. And they have this very special place on their property where they go and they be together and they comb her hair and they tell her how beautiful she is, how much she's done for the tribe and how she's loved and massage her until she's feeling really good and connected and powerful again. Then she goes back to her man with a whole other energy, not one of blaming and green-eyed jealousy and all this controlling pain kind of stuff, victim stuff. Very different. It's like they're healing her emotions. Exactly. They're strengthening her, empowering her. Yeah. Same for the men. I've gone to the men's circle there, and the men sit around and they talk about how can we support each other in having the relationships with the different women in the tribe that we really want. So they're not in competition. They're actually in, in collaboration with each other to support each other in having whatever kind of relationship they want with whoever it is in the tribe instead of competing. Well, when you talk about it, it sounds like a lot of these are, are places where people live together. The last thing I've been talking about is where people live together in an intentional community. But this can be done in any kind of network. It doesn't have to be land-based. Any network can do this. Great. The way you described it sounds like the women pair off in their groups for this kind of thing. Is that because it works better potentially? And the men pair off. But is there also like cross-nurturing? There is a value to, sure. When there's meeting together frequently, we, we try to come together as a men and women together and, and have nurturing and growing and healing activities. And there's also the value to having men have just their circles along with just the men and the women to have circles with just the women sometimes. There's a value, a special power to that. Right. Just to be clear, I'm guessing that the men are still masculine. I think this is something to bring up because sometimes when, when we think about these, I know some people might be thinking about kind of love communes and the new agey kind of stuff a little bit um, as you're talking about this. That wouldn't meet my needs for transparency. Uh-huh. The new age man who's like leaned over and kind of like trying to hide his sexuality, trying to hide his power as a way to lure women in, help them, make them think they're safe so that they can have sex with them, basically. <laughs> I've never heard that put that way before. That's great. As opposed to the men that I see who are very grateful for the full, powerful expression of their hot sexual male power. And they live it and breathe it and express it and don't hide it. And they allow other people to be scared about it. They allow people to get wounded by it. They don't make it happen. But they don't hide it. So in this new culture, there's more focus on people living and breathing, expressing their personal power and their sexual power, and allowing other people to have their reactions to it because they need to grow. There's community support for that, too. But it's tragic that men have been asked to hide their hot, beautiful, sexual male power. And that women are, if, if they start doing that, they're seen as asking for some, asking for it. And they're asked not to, you know, they're asked to turn it down in the old culture. In the new culture, you're asked to just let it rip, let it be there with there. And particularly older people, too. Older women, like it's the Zed community, are very sexy. And they're loved for it and respected for it. And, the energy is, is, is powerful in itself, even if 
the physical form has changed a bit. Is there a certain type of person who fits into this culture, or do you think anyone who wants to be the real version of themselves? I'd say that. It's not for everyone. Surely it would not culturally suit everyone's taste. And there's a lot of people who are very wounded. And it'll bring up your wounds to get around an authentic group of people. So it's not, some people would need to do a lot of work and healing first, I think, before they would be very comfortable coming into an authentic culture like this. Great. Some great points. Okay. So if someone today is interested in this culture and they think it's, they think it's kind of inspirational and something that might have a good fit for them, what kind of stages would you suggest they go through and how to get involved with it eventually? Well, two or three things. I'll try to give the resources. One, I have quite a few resources on my website, languageofcompassion.com, www.languageofcompassion.com. There's quite a few resources there. There's some resources in England. Are most of your listeners from the UK or from all over Europe? Most of them are in the US and then there's scattered all over the world. In that case, yeah, like I said, my website also, if you're in Germany, zegg.de, a useful website. Also, I'll be touring Germany pretty soon in May. I'll have a two-month tour if you come then. Uh, there's also Tamera.org, T-A-M-E-R-A.org in Portugal that has a worldwide influence. There's also NFNC.org, the Network for New Culture. It has some resources there. Also, the book Sacred Matrix is helpful. And then my book, Don't Be Nice, Be Real. Great thing. Our group's starting, and I'm willing to get on Skype and help people start groups anywhere they want to do it to start building this transparent, touching tribe thing. Great. And so give us a bit of a context to this. How long have you been involved in it? About, I think, somewhere between 15 and 20 years. Okay, it's a really long time. Uh, Have you seen it grown a lot in popularity numbers? Yes, in a very beautiful, organic way. Right now, all all around the U.S., there's new culture tribes in many of the big cities now, uh, particularly on the West Coast. And we have these camps. I just got back from two-week summer camp. 110 people for two weeks. And other people are starting these camps all over, like in Hawaii, California, and Southern California, and the East Coast, Virginia, and Cleveland. So is that called a new culture camp? or? Yeah, Network for New Culture Camp. Okay, great. And what happens at the camp? What do you, what do, you do? Well, one big thing we do we haven't talked about yet is we practice this kind of sacred practice called the Zeg Forum. And what it looks like is a big circle of people and one person at a time gets in the middle, and they're facilitated by one or two facilitators in expressing what's authentic, what's alive, and what's true. Could be related to a particular issue they're having with their relationships with themselves. Could be a celebration. Could be just some communication they're wanting to make to the whole community. So the Zeg Forum was designed as a process to help a community communicate with itself. But it also does transformational psychodrama work. So it's very playful. We joke with people, we have them do silly things, we have them do dramatic kind of psychodrama things, all kinds of interventions and techniques we use in a very creative, intuitive way to bring what's subconscious to the conscious, kind of like being denied to bring it into reality. But it's our tool for healing and empowerment and authenticity and helps the whole community start to understand and know what the issues are for the different people so they can support them and help them and dealing with their issues, whatever they are. Sounds a little bit like ayahuasca. (laughs) A little bit, yeah. That's a good example. I I would say yes. And the focus is on one person at a time. The whole community supports one person at a time in 
awakening. So how long does that last for? Is it a 10-minute thing? or? Usually we do it every morning for an hour and a half. Wow. So the person's in the middle for an hour and a half. No, no, no. People are in there for one minute, anywhere from one minute to 20 minutes. Okay, okay. More, several people go in, you know. Is it voluntary or do they get kind of chosen? Absolutely voluntary. Oh, it sounds a great, like a great growth tool. It's a wonderful tool. It's, it's one of the most powerful community building tools I've ever seen. And it is the foundation for at least 13 intentional communities that I know of in Europe. It's really the bedrock, the foundation of their trust and transparency and communication with themselves. And it does something on a field level. It evolves community issues, whatever they're dealing with, whether it's the man-woman conflict, the freedom and closeness problem, the emergence versus design issues, money issues, sacred economics. This is something that's come up a lot. So our forum processes tend to be around economics when, when that's up in the field. So whatever's up in the community field, we work on it. One person at a time takes on a part of it. And the others piggyback. So after people get up in the middle and share some issue or process, other people have a chance to give mirrors. They reflect what they saw in the field, maybe what they saw that didn't come out and help deepen, broaden their understanding of their own process. So everyone gets to participate in the process. Great, great. Thank you for that. It makes it a lot clearer um, when you describe it in those words. So one of the things you mentioned, it was the best tool that you'd found over the years. So I'd be interested, were you comparing it against, like what other things did you look at over the leaves over the years? To me, nonviolent communication is the very best communication tool, dialogical, for dialogical purposes. This is the best community tool for a community to communicate with itself. I would say NBC is to communication what Zeg Forum is to community building. They're both the best tools I've found, but for a little bit different purposes. Great. One of the things I'm wondering is like, as people get involved in this community, I've seen communities grow before and the people who get involved in the community start to drift away from the other communities they've been in in their life or, you know, the people around with them. Is that something that happens, tends to happen? I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's uh, just something. Yes and no. I'd say as people put more attention into their local tribes, naturally they have less time for other things. But there's no taboo on that. I love being connected with lots of different tribes. They have different things that I get different things out of different tribes. And the interesting thing about new culture tribes is that we bring back the technologies we learn from other tribes. We invite people from other tribes into our tribe to teach us. Recently, we invited the people from the next culture movement into the new culture camps for a couple of weeks to teach us their processes called possibility management, where their comes out of their tribe. So there's a cross-pollinization. It's very wonderful between the different tribes that have different depths of consciousness about different subjects. A little example would be like Fentorn. I imagine you're familiar with Fentorn. Did you say Dentorn? Fen. Fentorn. No. no, no. It's a large community in Scotland. Okay. They're very spiritual, but they're not very evolved in their sexuality. So they bring people from the Zeg community, which they're very evolved in their sexuality, to Fentorn to help increase their consciousness around it. And the people from Finhorn were very involved in their spirituality, go to Zeg and share what they're learning on the spiritual level with that community. So it's a wonderful kind of exchange program happening between the different communities. And we steal, so to speak, we borrow from all these different communities, whatever tools, whatever tribal technology we feel will help us. Great. It sounds like a movement rather than something that's already been well-defined. I think so. 
I guess a quality of it is just what I'm talking about. That we have no loyalty to any particular process. We just use whatever process helps us, and different tools help us at different times in our development. And there's good ones coming from Thomas Hubel sharing the present, Next Culture, Arne Mandel's work, leaders, martial artists. There's a lot of good stuff coming out. Great, thank you for that. So yeah, I think we've got a good good idea of what the new culture is about. And thank you for introducing that, which wasn't actually that I was something I knew we were going to explore on this interview. So it's always the most fun when we do these kind of interviews. So changing gear a little bit and uh, some a few practical questions about nonviolent communication, so people can kind of get that, that into their heads. What would be the first step to take for someone who's interested in learning it to start using it effectively? There's lots of stuff online. You can go to cnvc.org, Center for Nonviolent Communication.org. There's lots of resources. You can go to YouTube. There's lots of videos, wonderful videos by Marshall Rosenberg, a few, a couple of them by, by me and other people. Wonderful YouTube stuff. There's lots of good material books. My book is called A Handbook for Nonviolent Communication, Marshall Rosenberg's book, Nonviolent Communication, and there's several other good ones out right now all on nonviolent communication. And there's plenty of audio CDs you can download, podcasts, just to get you started. But really, there's nothing like a little group to practice it in. It's like learning any language. It's better if you can learn with the locals and other practice groups sometimes. And they're all over England. They're all over the U.S. You can look them up on cnbc.org where the supporters are. Great. Thank you for that stack of resources. I was wondering, I mentioned earlier, I found it a little bit tricky to get started with it because it's nuanced. In terms of the you know the violent things we say, you have to kind of have this self awareness of like oh that's another one of those nuanced violent words that I didn't think was violent but I know it but subconsciously. I'm gonna make a distinction about something. The violence, I think, comes from the energy and the intention, not from the form of the word. Okay. What energy and intention is behind it? I can tell you to go to hell with love, and you'll get it because my intention, my energy is supporting and caring about you. Or I can tell you to go to hell, and my energy is very punishing. If the intent behind it is to make you suffer and to, and to create pain for you, and then, and then that makes a very different communication. So I say that communication is 20% form, 80% energy and intention. So that makes a big difference. What's happening in my heart? Can I pay attention to how I'm feeling as I'm choosing, expressing these words? And if I'm caught up in a very punitive intention, I may need to stop and give myself empathy first or get it from somebody else first before continuing the interaction with somebody. Or if I'm noticing that I'm caught up in some angry, punitive energy, I might humble myself and just ask directly for empathy. Hey, I'm feeling very angry about what you did yesterday and really did not meet my needs for respect. Partner dear, what are you hearing this is about for me? I need empathy. Yeah, there were some examples uh, packed in there. What I found was kind of tricky with the wording. I know I understand perfectly what you say about the 80% is a feeling behind it. Let me know if you think this is true. What I've kind of seen coaching um, guys over time is that I feel, especially when they first start out on this path to better themselves, uh, to better this aspect of their lives, they're not as self-aware. It's a process of learning about themselves. What I've seen in many cases, the more the ones who are a bit more challenged and they, they're taking more time to improve this area of their life, is that they're not aware when they're being angry or they're not aware when they're in a mood or offensive. And I feel like sometimes, often in fact, it's easier to start with something like a communication approach, like NVC, 
to take those first few steps because it's very tangible. It says, okay, this way of talking is more violent. This way of talking is is non-violent and is going to get you better results. And then I feel, I mean, that these kind of tools actually engender a learning process of your being coming more aware of yourself through them just by the process of using them. Is, does that make sense from your world and what you've seen over the years? Yes, very much so. Just being conscious of what is a judgment or what isn't a judgment and being able to recognize it in your consciousness and turn your attention to what energy am I coming from, what's going on in me. So, yes, I think the tools can be very helpful to try to speak in a form that has a nonviolent intention. Kind of like trainer wheels, trainer wheels on a bicycle. Trainer wheels are very helpful for until you get the consciousness behind it. But, but yes, I'm, I'm all for supporting. Let me give you a little tool. You said you like takeaways and things. Here's one little tool that helps me is I use this with men who have not practiced a lot, identifying and articulating their feelings. I would tell them, just look inside and ask yourself, are you feeling mad, sad, glad, or scared? Mad, sad, glad, or scared. And often, even men who are shut down can identify that they're mad, sad, glad, or scared. And I tell them that if they really are scared and they don't say it, they come across as being aggressive. Unexpressed fear looks like aggression. And they can see how that works in their lives. And then they'll start being more vulnerable person, just asking, scared or am I mad? Let me check. And then if they'll put it out there, hey, I'm scared to ask you this, but will you let me drive or whatever it is? It really helps. They'll see pretty quickly. They get much better results than if they just say, can I drive? How aggressive that comes across. So the little tool is mad, sad, glad, or scared. Just check in and see which one of those it is. And be vulnerable and expressive as a starting point. That's very helpful. You really simplified it down just to four, four emotions. And by doing that, it's a lot harder. And they're extreme. So it's a lot harder to recognize which box you're in. Great little tool. I'm guessing you still use that today. Yeah, sure. Okay, great, great. Or MGSS. Do you call it MGSS or MAGLAD? No, I, I don't know that. Okay, no, I was just wondering, like, MAGLAD, oh, sad, scared. Exactly. Um, you know, just uh, another way to remember it for, for people. There's another little one. I'll give you another anagram tool if you want. Yeah, absolutely. Oftener, O-F-N-R. I want to do this practice more oftener. Oftener. O-F-N-R stands for observation, feeling, need, request. I try to use it more often. Make the observation. When I see you leave the toilet seat down, I feel, and I say my feelings, angry, because I'm needing respect and a dry bottom. And then I request, would you be willing to put the toilet seat down when you finish? Whatever. So, often. That's great. And then that's actually the tool I learned. And uh, what I was going to say earlier is like, I, in live conversation, it's more challenging for me to start learning with something like that. So what I did when I was first using this, I was using it mostly in emails, Skype, texts, in situations that had become conflictual. That's where it gave me a little bit more time to think about it and uh, to get it right, basically, instead of kind of half messing it up, as I might have done if I'd just done it in the moment, as when you're learning any tool. Is that something you've seen that's been helpful for people, maybe writing or um, using nonverbal, it's kind of like asynchronous versus immediate live communication. I think it's easier if I have the time to look at what's really going on with me and articulate it in a way that's in line with my values. The more time I have, the better. Sometimes in the moment, when it's for the moment, I go up and I try to think, what's the right NBC thing to say? And I leave my authenticity, I leave my body, I leave my emotion, go up to my head and think about it. 
And that can take me away from the power of the energy I'm trying to express. So it can become quite kind of mental if I'm trying to do it from a technique place. So it helps if I can understand that there's these observation, feeling, need, request ideas and not like try to do oh. it right. Try to do it from my heart. Try to speak feelings, needs, and requests intuitively yeah. from my heart without thinking about it. It feels more authentic. Great. Thank you for that. So this is, this is a question we run by everyone, and it's a bit more general. What advice do you give out to a lot of men and women in relationships that you think is ignored the most? Well, I think the thing that gets ignored a lot is the foundation for having a healthy love relationship going on, which is my mind again, is have a healthy little group of people, maybe just five people, who come together and support each other and becoming empowered and helping each other with our different issues, things like that, as a foundation to get that going first, at least five people who are your supporters, and then then go start dating and bring your date to your tribe and have everybody fall in love with her and want to support you in having a good relationship. So the foundation for a healthy relationship is often ignored. So we need that family, that community first, and then intimate relationships are not so drama-filled. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm definitely a, a big believer in, in tribes as well. We've had quite a few speakers coming from different perspectives to you, but, but all believing in that communities are more important, tribes are more important than, and obviously we've got a bit far away from those in, in the independent society. I think men in particular seem to struggle with that today. Well, there were families, long before there were families, there were tribes. And by the way, just to be controversial, these tribes were generally speaking non-monogamous. <laughs> we know that now because of DNA and looking at the bones of, of families, of, of tribes from a long time ago. I don't think it's so controversial on this podcast. Okay. Okay, <laughs> the, the audience has heard it a lot before, but it's great of you to bring it up and remind us. There's a good book on it called Sex at Dawn. Oh yeah, of course. That's Christopher Ryan. Yeah. So naturally, where I look happen, as I see groups here in California and in Germany, when people are given permission to follow their preferences, many of them will follow the preference of having more than one romantic love or sexual partner. It just happens if they have permission, culturally, not to put pressure on anybody. It just kind of seems to be what happens when people have that permission. Yeah, I can tell you that a lot of people I've met over time have moved towards that that like the the men will want to have more partners in general uh, most men do however they often struggle with how to not hurt the women involved this is something that is, is like a conflict between what what they feel they want naturally and they don't want to hurt the women two two big things about this number one there needs to be a consciousness that we don't really hurt each other we we are the catalyst for stuff coming up we are the detonator, not the dynamite. That's one thing. We're the stimulus, not the cause. We need to have that or else we feel so responsible for people's pain, we can have no responsivity to their pain. We feel guilty, so we can't have empathy. So I, It doesn't bother me so much if someone has some pain, if I can really have an empathic, compassionate connection to it. That's the one level. That's the individual level. But on the tribal, on the field level, there is a place, there is a field of community consciousness, where jealousy, hurt feelings, drama, doesn't even make sense anymore. We see how we do it to ourselves. We see it's the beliefs. It's the, when I tell myself it hurts me, 
And then it just, you just can't do it to yourself anymore. And sometimes in these fields, jealousy and all that drama just can't grow there, can't get a foothold there because it's not a part of the consciousness of that field. And it's hard to do this just on your own. That's why I think it takes that this kind of social, emotional, romantic enlightenment can only happen as a group activity. Only, only a group, I think, can really realize this freedom and have healthy sexual and romantic relationships in the field of this self-responsibility and, and low drama. I mean, absence of drama. It's great, uh, absence of drama. <laughs> I used to be very obsessed with it 10 years ago. Actually, the, the exact um, conundrum I was, I was um, discussing with you just then, the drama and the guilt, as you, as you named. So just on the guilt, is, is the guilt about you versus the empathy is about them? Is there an easy way to explain this? Guilt comes when I tell myself I shouldn't have done what I did. So I'm not having compassion for myself, and I'm not accepting reality. I'm not accepting what is. And then the other thing is I tell myself this belief, this mass hysterical belief, that we have the power to hurt each other. And when I wink at Susie over here, that causes Jane on the other side of the room to go into deep pain. And it's scary. It's insane. It's interesting because that feeds our ego, right? That behavior you just... Kind of, yeah. I'm, I'm that powerful that I can wink at Susie and cause Jane to into a lot of pain. And it's not very accurate. The truth is I'm the stimulus. Yes, I did wink. What's my intention? Did I intend to create pain for Jane over here? Or was my intention just to express some affection towards Susie? Great. Thank you. Thank you. That's a good definition. Okay. So what are the biggest objections you've come across to your advice? I'm just wondering if there's like some people you come across with. with. A lot of people disagree with what I'm just saying. They don't cause each other pain. So when I wink at Susie, it does cause Jane pain. And therefore, I'm responsible for it. Right. There's a whole world of low drama consciousness, perpetrator, rescuer, victim. It pretty much has a big foothold on our culture right now and a lot of people would be very upset with me suggesting otherwise that sounds very much like talking about boundaries we've often had that topic we've had polyamorous who talk about boundaries and and other people it sounds very much like it's about just i'm responsible for myself you're responsible for yourself having a clearer boundary between you i would say a little different language would be can i maintain my center and can you maintain your center or are you going to give your center away to me and try to make me responsible for what you're telling yourself. Try to make me responsible for your decision to hold yourself out and to be caught up in the idea of you're the victim of what's happening. Thanks, thanks for that. It's, it's helpful. Okay, uh, rounding off the interview. Thank you so much for your time, Kelly. Where is the best place people can connect with you and learn more about your work? Just go to my website, www.languageofcompassion.com, or they could email me, kelly at languageofcompassion.com. Excellent. Yeah, direct communication, always the best. Are you on Twitter at all or anywhere like that? I'm on Twitter. I'm also on Skype. People can call me. We can do Skype sessions sometimes. The technology's working. Yeah, um, not, not 100% today. But, I will be yeah. in the U.S. and in, uh, well, up till May, and then in May I'll be in Europe. Uh, but there's, there's lots of good information out there. There's more coming up all the time. There is something beyond polyamory that, that is really very exciting to me. It's not about the old agreement. Thing is more on consciousness than agreement and boundaries. It's an evolutionary step up from the old control, kind of control love. Were you polyamorous before? Was that one of your kind of steps? I was exploring the polyamorous culture here in California. 
but I could see that it didn't really meet my needs for consciousness in love. Pretty much the old, the old types of love, the old kinds of games, but now you're doing it with multiple people. So it just makes it for a multiple train wreck. Yeah. Was it a learning step for you also? Sure. Good learning train wreck. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, so who besides yourself would you recommend for high quality advice in this area? Dating, sex, relationships, the whole area. Um, let's see. Well, there's some guy named Reed Mahalko. Oh, yeah. You know Reed? Yeah, he's been on here before. Oh, yeah. That's fun. You know, incredible party. Uh, Kamala Devi down in San Diego. Wonderful uh, teacher, very well known in this whole area of, of I would call it new culture relationships. People of the Zen community, Ina Akim, Akim, or Ina Meyer and Akim, are wonderful teachers in relationships. They live in Germany. Um, well, there's a lot of new culture practitioners in the U.S. now, on both East and West Coast. Thank you so much for those references. Uh, really good. Help, it helps people to further explore the topic as well. So what would be your top three recommendations to men who are starting out with relationships, dating, sex, this whole area of their lives and saying they have no knowledge and they're kind of just starting on their journey? What would be your top three tips to them? I'd say number one, find a couple books that really help start the process of waking up. Like Eckhart Tolle's books, The Future of Love is a beautiful book about it. I have another book called The Marriage of Sex and Spirit with a whole bunch of authors. We did an anthology together, which is good. Start with that, Sex at Dawn, read a little bit, and find some friends who resonate and you can talk to about it, you can be of support to you about it. And then as you go out dating, you might find people more aligned with what you're really looking for. And also I say, be really transparent up front with the people about what you really want, what you're clear about what you want in your love life and your relationships. And start start with that so that the person has a chance right away to say, yes, I'm on board, or no, that doesn't fit for me. So it's spending so much time, months and weeks dating, and then finding out you're not a fit. Also, our last recommendation is that, you know, this connection thing that, that I got so focused just on women, I find out later I can also have that same certain quality of soulful connection with men that meets a lot of needs so that I'm not so hungry and needy. I can come to women a more casual place, a more grounded place, a more playful place. And then it seems to work a lot better. The connection works a lot better. And I'm not so desperately hungry for a connection. So get your connection needs met somewhere and then go fishing, so to speak. I think that's an excellent piece of advice that a lot of guys don't think about. The guys who struggle most of this life, they also have a smaller uh, social circle and friends and, and people who they can talk to directly as, you know, being transparent and so on, have the types of conversations they want to. So, you know, I find often one of the good first steps to start working on is like developing their social circle, meeting people that they can relate to properly and so on, and makes them a lot more comfortable with women, a lot less nervous, a lot less anxious and um, those kind of things. Great, great, great point. And they need to find social circles that value transparency, not just mental talk, but they really value being authentic and open hearted with each other. And if you can't find one, make one up. You can just invent it. Start an honesty salon of your own. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great point. Well, Kelly, thank you so much for your time. And it's been a great discussion. It's been really nice for me too, Angel. Thank you so much. Take control of your dating life today. Take one idea or one insight from today's episode and apply it today. Don't wait. Do it today. That's all it takes to change your life. 
step by step, episode by episode. Learn more about what I, Angel Donovan, and my team do at datingskillsreview.com. How we help men like you take control of their dating lives.